It was a quiet night at the Steer House Nursing and Rehabilitation Center. Angela was precepting a new nurse, a nice young thing, smart, compassionate, and very caring. It was late, and they were deep into the long night shift. Both Angela, the senior nurse, and her new grad were standing at the nurse's station charting, the buzz of the fluorescent lights above creating an eerie soundtrack to an otherwise mundane Tuesday evening. As Angela stood writing down room four's vital stats and pain scale, she felt a silky thin feline twist their body between her legs, purring as he rubbed his little head on her pant leg. Oh, hi, pretty kitty, Angela cooed as she bent down to give the cat a good scritch behind the ear. I didn't know you had a cat here, the new nurse exclaimed. This is Oscar. He hides away most of the time, but he always knows when a patient needs him. Needs him? The new grad asked as she watched Oscar slink away and turn into room eight. Oh, I did wonder if today was the day, Angela sighed. Room eight, Mr. Johnson. He's had agonal breathing all day. Come on, let's go sit with him for a little while. The two nurses each took a seat either side of Mr. Johnson's bed as he took labored and irregular breaths. His O2 sats were dire, heart rate irregular, and his body temperature had begun to drop. But Angela didn't need vital stats to tell her Mr. Johnson was dying. She knew that the moment Oscar entered the room. Oscar sat next to Mr. Johnson, head on his chest, purring in a steady rhythm that made Mr. Johnson's breath seem less arduous and erratic. It didn't take long for Mr. Johnson to die. It never did when Oscar was there. He always just knew the right moment to come and provide comfort. And no sooner did Mr. Johnson's soul leave the room did Oscar hop silently off the bed and retreat to a warm, quiet corner to doze. Oscar may have started as a therapy cat, but after he stood vigil at the bedside of over 30 individual patients, it was clear Oscar was no ordinary cat. Some call Oscar an angel. Others just say that animals are more perceptive and aware than we are. But everyone agrees that Oscar is a great comfort to patients as they transition from this world to the next. It's Becca. For the past three years, the West London Witch team have been dedicated to bringing you the best supernatural stories at the highest studio quality. And by team, I mean me and my buddy Danny. We do this work totally for free because we love it. We're proud of our content and appreciate the wonderful interactions we get to have with storytellers 
and listeners just like yourself. If you're enjoying the West London Witch, maybe consider joining our Patreon. It's a way to further engage with us and show your support for two creatives. If you're in a position to spare enough each month for us to grab a cup of coffee in between edits or add to the piggy bank for a new microphone, we would love to see you in our Patreon community. But I know times are tough. So if you're not in a position to join Patreon right now, that's okay. We aren't going anywhere. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch. For as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, you can gain full access to our coven, a space where we share behind-the-scenes stories, dive deeper into each episode, answer your questions, and have special little treats to thank you for sharing your love and kindness with your favorite little witch. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of The West London Witch a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. Everyone always tells parents to get their kids pets so when they die, they can learn how to manage death and grief. Well, I grew up in a family of animal lovers. My parents have a little farm with pet chickens, ducks, loads of dogs, cats, and alpacas. We have had to say goodbye to countless animals. And the only thing it's taught me is that death sucks. And the only downside to owning a pet is that we will probably outlive them. I personally do not cope well with death, grief, and dying. I have to actively try to be death positive and understand that conversations about death and dying are healthy, important, and should be normalized. I read articles and listen to lectures about the death positive movement. So it didn't really come as much of a surprise to me when my YouTube algorithm showed me a short from a hospice nurse talking about end of life care. I wanted to pass it, keep scrolling, find a video about a puppy or a drag queen. But I stayed. And then I went to her channel and watched endless reels about all the funny, sad, and common things that come up in hospice care. I found out that hospice nurse Penny is an RN and a certified hospice and palliative care nurse. She's been in hospice care for 12 years and is actually TikTok famous with over 500,000 subscribers. Her goal is to educate, normalize, and entertain people about the process we will all go through one day. So I reached out to hospice nurse Penny and asked if she would share with us all the weird, wild, and wonderful things that happen when we die. I figured if anyone knew about death and had a balanced approach to it, it would be a hospice nurse. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch. Episode 46, Changing What Hope Means. I actually, so I didn't become a nurse until I was 40 years old. I went to nursing school when I was 40. Um, That was something I had to do um, as a result of getting a divorce and not having a career to fall back on. And um, my ex-husband's mother, stepmother, had been on hospice and died on hospice about a year prior to that. So I had an experience with hospice through, through that situation. 
Um, but I also had a very rocky past growing up in my um, 20s. I was drug addicted and um, just had a lot of problems with the law, went to jail a few times, gave my son to his dad to raise when he was four. Um, so at the point where, you know, I, I had had my life together for quite a, a while um, and then made the decision to go to nursing school, I kind of wanted to do something that I felt was going to be um, service work, you know, like um, to kind of make amends for um, being a, a non-contributing uh, member of society. Penny describes this journey into hospice care as an unusual one. She wasn't necessarily motivated by patient care, but rather a deep resolve to do good deeds, give back to society. And after watching her mother-in-law's experience in hospice, she knew it was a place where she could have a positive impact. She wanted to help herself by serving others. So it's it's really more like it's a gift to me to be able to do this and, and to, to keep those emotional boundaries in place so that it doesn't become so overwhelming. You have to be a very, very special kind of human to be a hospice nurse. It is an undeniably hard job. You're not only caring for the medical and emotional needs of your patients, but also their family. And unlike on other units in a hospital, you know exactly what the end result in hospice is going to be. Um, interestingly, you know, losing the patient never really made me sad. I always felt like if I did my job and I managed their symptoms and I prepared their family, when they died, that was the expectation and it was a job well done. Um, it was almost sadder to, um, to no longer have the relationship with the family. You expect the patient to die. You know that that relationship is going to end. But then the family, you know, is still living and you no longer have that relationship. And, and when a person is dying, they get to a stage where they're no longer responsive, but you're still going to the family. So you really almost become more attached to them than you do to the patient. A large part of Penny's job is helping the family understand what the process of death looks like so they can help comfort and care for their loved one without fear. In our lives, we are taught about all sorts of medical procedures from CPR to childbirth, but no one teaches us about the great equalizer, death. There are many indicators that death is near, and it's important to be able to recognize those symptoms as a normal and natural part of the dying process. Some signs you may expect, such as difficulty breathing, decreased blood pressure, restlessness, or loss of appetite. But there are other symptoms that are simply remarkable. And dare I say, beautiful. You know, deathbed visioning is really common at the end of life. Deathbed visioning is a phenomenon that occurs when a person is close to death. It can happen days, weeks, or moments before death occurs. The patient will often see dead loved ones, pets, hear music, see light, or shadow figures. They aren't scary, but rather comforting. Stories of deathbed visioning have been reported for centuries and in all countries, religions, and cultures. They're not the same as hallucinations, though. 
Hallucinations are scary and upsetting, where deathbed visions are peaceful and soothing. And most importantly, they are very common. I've had so many patients who have who have told me they could see somebody in the room, but I've got a few that really, really stand out to me. And one of them it was a, a gentleman who was at our hospice care center and his his wife died a year before he did. And he had, he was old, he was in his 80s and they had been married forever. They were together forever. And they had a caregiver that took care of both of them. Um, and, and his wife died a year before him. And he came to our care center. And one day I was at the nurse's station and I heard him yelling. And I could hear him in there, Inga! Inga, and I went into the room, and he's just crying. He's got just tears coming down his face, and he's looking up in the corner of the room, which is where a lot of people who are dying tend to look when they're visioning, or even when they're not, they tend to look up. He's looking up in the corner of the room, and he's just crying, and he's reaching out to her, and he's calling her name, Inga, Inga. And I said, Tom, was Inga your wife? And he said, yes, yes. And she's right there. I see her. And I said, is she coming to get you? And he said, yes, yes, but not today. She's coming tomorrow. And I said, oh, okay. So the next day, he did not die. He died a day after that. And the next time I worked, his caregiver came in to pick up his belongings. And I told her the story. And she just completely deadpan said to me, it was always like Inga to be late. Penny had seen deathbed visioning many times before and endless times afterwards. But this experience has always stuck with her throughout her career. To Penny, it was undeniable proof of an afterlife. Because deathbed visions, even though we call them deathbed visions, People are not necessarily on their deathbed when they have that. They can have those visions when they're still able to clearly tell you what has happened. It happens weeks before their death. And it's such um, a, such a common occurrence and such a strong predictor of death that we ask those questions of our patients as a part of our assessment. Are you seeing anything out of the ordinary? Are you seeing, you know, and I had a patient who... Uh, she she always insisted on sitting at the kitchen table with me and she was getting weaker and weaker. And I just, I could tell like she was really declining. And I was sitting at the table with her one day and, and then I said to her, um, I asked her, have you been seeing anything out of the ordinary? And she said, like, what? And I said, well, like maybe people who have died before you. And she said, oh, no, no, nothing like that. And I said, oh, okay. Because um, that's actually really normal. She goes, it is? And I go, yeah, yeah. Lots of times um, people tell us that they can see, you know, like their deceased loved ones. And she goes, oh my gosh. Well, then I guess I can tell you my dad's standing in the kitchen right now. She goes, I didn't want to tell you because I was afraid you'd think I was crazy. No, you're normal. Tell him I. (laughs) There are moments in hospice care that totally change the way you see the world around you. 
Of course, witnessing deathbed visions would be astounding. But some changes are a little more subtle, but that doesn't make them any less profound. So I was working at the hospice care center. I was pretty new. I hadn't been in hospice for very long. And we had a room across the hall from the nurse's station. And the patient in that room was an elderly lady. And she had a daughter who was a nun. So all these nuns were coming and going, visiting her all the time. So one Sunday evening, I was, I was at the nurse's station and the last visitor was a nun and she came out to the station and she said to me, she's gone. And I looked at her and I stood up out of my chair and I grabbed my stethoscope and I said, oh. And she said, no, 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 she hasn't died yet. Her body is still here doing the work of dying, but her spirit has left. You can see it in her eyes. And I was just like, what? So after she left, I walked into the room and I looked at the patient and I could see she was gazing up at the ceiling, but there was no light in her eyes. Like the lights were out, nobody's home. She had this what we sometimes now call um, looking at heaven or the death stare where there's just no, no recognition of anything. They're not focusing their eyes on anything. And really at that moment that I was like, oh, she's right. She is right. The spirit has left and the shell, the body is just still here doing the work of dying. This is a beautifully comforting story of release. But conversely, what happens if your soul doesn't leave your body? What happens if you gaze up at the heavens waiting to be liberated and the heavens just stare back at you? We had, okay, so now I've seen this woman and I have this feeling that this spirit leaves the body because you can see in their eyes when they leave, right? It's just this vacant look. So this is now something that I've I've observed many, many times as a hospice nurse and, and feel like that's what happens. So we get a patient who is a sex offender. He's a prisoner. And he uh, he's at our hospice care center and there is a guard at the bed with him. And he's got cancer. He's dying. And he's actively dying. Like he's getting into the stage where he's no longer responsive. He's not going to hurt anybody anymore. And so I said to the guard, he must have really done something terrible for you to need to be here with him right now. You know, because obviously he's not going to get up and hurt anybody anymore. He's unresponsive. He's dying. And the guard said to me, I don't want to know what he did. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I I thought, yeah, I probably don't because really end-of-life care, you provide to everybody the same without judgment, right? It's, he's dying now. So I'm going to care for him as with as much compassion as I care for any of my patients. So it's better if I don't know what he did. But as I was taking care of him that night and the room was dark and it was an evening because I worked long hours and it was at the end of the evening and it was dark and the look of his spirit leaving never happened. Like he was in there. You could see in his eyes, he was in there up until he took his last 
breath. And I've never, I had never seen that before and I've never seen it since, but he did not ever get that checked out look. He always looked like he was in there all the way until the end. And I, and this is like where I really get woo in my own brain here because I always thought to myself, maybe that's what happens when you are such a bad person you know, your spirit doesn't leave when you're doing the work of dying. You actually have to stay there for a while, you know, think things through maybe. I don't know, maybe you're locked in there until your body decomposes and then you're let out. I don't know, but um, it, it definitely uh, planted a seed in my brain for, for something um, that, that maybe happens to people when they're bad because I, I really never saw that ever again after that or before. Very creepy. And that's the thing about being a hospice nurse. You see it all. The good, the bad, the sad. And sometimes just plain strange things that in their own way are uniquely sweet. Oddly enough, some patients, even in their death, make you smile. He was a truck driver, and this is the story that the night shift told me. When I came in in the morning, they said the truck driver was driving the truck all night. So he kept saying, I got to drive the truck. I got to drive the truck. And he was moving his hands like he had his hands on a steering wheel. And he kept all night long, I got to drive the truck. I got to pick him up. I need to drive the truck got to pick him up. And throughout the night, several patients died. And then in the morning, he died. And so the nursing staff at night said he was driving around, picking everybody up. And then when he had everybody in the truck, he left with them all. As you can probably imagine, night shift at a hospice care center is a very interesting experience, shall we say. Penny doesn't like working nights, primarily because it's hard physically being up all night long. But as all nurses know, night shifts are unavoidable, and everyone has to do them at some point in their career. And I worked there one night, and we had these pagers that would tell us um, when, a, when a patient was do- w- w- put their um, call light on. It would say the room number on it. And then when somebody was at the front door, which we would lock at eight o'clock at night, it would page and say front door when they rang the doorbell. So I had this pager on and it kept paging front door and I would go to the front door and I'd answer it and there'd be nobody there. And it happened like three times. And I finally said to one of the RNs I was working with, the pager keeps telling me there's somebody at the front door, but there's nobody there. She said, oh, it happens all the time. It's the spirits coming to get the the patients when they die. And I was like, what? And right after that, a call light went on. It was a room number. And I went down there and the family said their their person had just died. And I was like, blown away. What? So what happens when a patient dies? Well, at the hospice where Penny works, they have a tradition called an honor toast where they drink to the life of the patient. But Penny has an incredible story of one honor toast that was untraditional in more than one way. We had two patients at the care center um, that were kind of, um, their, their rooms were across the hall from each other. One was further down the hall, the lady who had ALS. 
And then um, on the other side of the hall, there was a, a man who had um, uh, cirrhosis of the liver, end-stage liver disease. So a lot of confusion there with him, right? Lots of confusion. Uh, and and um, she had made the decision to stop eating uh, to end her life. And so she um, had been with us for a really long time. And she knew that when a person died at the care center, we would do an honor toast. We would drink um, apple, sparkling apple cider and toast them. So she was there with us for so long that she knew that that's what we did. So she said she was going to stop eating. She didn't want to stop drinking yet because she wanted her morning cup of coffee. But she was like, I'm done. I'm going to stop eating. And she'd always ask me too. She'd say, now, how long did you say that I can expect to live without eating anything? And I said, well, you know, typically if you, uh, if you continue to drink, but you don't eat, it's about three weeks usually. And she was always asking, how long has it been? So she was really anxious. But she said, I want you to do the honor toast. Like, I want the staff here to do the honor toast with me. I don't want you to do it after I die. I want you to do it with me. So one evening, she called all the nurses into her room and told them, tonight is the night for her honor toast. Meanwhile, this guy down the hall with the cirrhosis of the liver, he's got this yappy little dog that's always there on the bed with him. Yappy, yappy little dog. So he's in the, in the room with his family. The dog is sleeping on the bed. He's sleeping. And down the hall, this lady with ALS has a staff come in and they all say something about her. And after the last person speaks, she dies, which is very unusual. People don't usually die like that. That you know, They usually go through a dying process and then they slip away. For somebody to go, I'm out of here and then die is very rare. Well, down the hall, all of a sudden, this little dog that's on the bed wakes up and stands up on the bed and starts yapping at the door. And the patient opens his eyes, looks at the door and says, who are you? And then he says, oh, okay. And then he closes his eyes and lays back down. There was nobody at the door. And it happened right after she died. So we were like, she was leaving the building and he saw her. He was able to see her. Nurse Penny always tells her patient's family that when they are caring for their dying loved ones, one thing they may need to do is reorientate the patient as to who they are, what they're doing, where they are, because the veil is so thin and they may already have one foot on the other side. They are transient between this place and somewhere beyond. It's also important to note that as pets are part of the family, they are not precluded from being a part of the death process. They are allowed to remain with their loved ones, and sometimes they do funny things as the patient begins the process of dying. Uh, they won't leave the bed. You know, they'll stay with them. I had a patient who was dying in his home and his dog was under the bed, would not leave, you know, for days while the person was dying. I like to believe that like Oscar, the hospice cat, our pets know what's going on and want to bring us comfort to the very end. Death is obviously unavoidable. We all hold a train ticket to the afterlife. We just don't know when our train departs. And we will all have to say goodbye to a loved one at some point in time. 
And Penny is no exception. So my dad, he got idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in late in the late in the year about 12 years ago. And he ended up getting very, very sick and going into the hospital just a few months after after he got his diagnosis. And, you know, it was really touch and go. And I kept telling the doctors that I felt like, you know, like he, I don't don't see him getting better from this. He had pneumocystis carini, which is a, a fungal infection that a person can get in their lungs. It's very prevalent uh, for people who have AIDS and they actually have a, a better success rate with it than people like my dad who got it because he was on some immunosuppressants for his idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So I was like, the survival rate is like 50% for this. And I kept saying to them, I'm a hospice nurse. Can you please, you know, be really straightforward with me about what's happening? No, no, he's going to be fine. We figured out what it is. We're going to treat him. So Penny's dad gets sent home. He was doing better on an upward swing. Penny took this opportunity to go home briefly to check in on her kids and her husband. But as anyone who has a loved one with fragile health knows, things can change dramatically, very quickly. So I went home and then a couple of days later, my mom calls me and she says, I think you need to come here. Dad is in the ICU and they're talking about hospice. I said, oh, geez. Okay. So I, I go to the hospital. I walk in the room. My dad looks really bad. And he says, yeah, they told me that um, they think I have a year to live and, um, and they can... Um, uh, put me on hospice. And I said, okay, that doesn't make sense because you have to have a, a expectation of six months or less to be on hospice. And my mom said, yeah, we're really confused. Can you call the pulmonologist? So I call the pulmonologist. He says, yeah, your dad had a, an event this morning, a respiratory crisis. He went on a BiPAP. If it happens again, he'll have to be intubated. I don't think he wants that. I said, no, I know he doesn't want that. Please, can we get a hospice consult? So we get the hospice consult. And um, my dad is a big, he was a big guy. He was from Texas. He grew up poor and uh, he loved to eat and he loved his Starbucks coffee. And he was on a fluid restriction and he was on a diabetic diet because of the uh, diabetes induced by medication. And so he was thirsty. They were only letting him have like four ounces of liquid a day and he was hungry for something good to eat. So as soon as we got the the hospice um, referral, I was like, poured him as much Dr. Pepper as you wanted. My sister and I went to this place called the Golden Corral. It's like an all-you-can-eat meat buffet. We loaded it up with meat, brought it back, got him a huge, huge thing of Starbucks. We each got to spend time with him, you know, telling him what he meant to us. The plan was that after some hospital-grade furniture was swapped out from Penny's mom's house, her father would be discharged home. Penny would be his nurse and care for him in his final months to come. So they're like, okay, well, he's going to have to spend the night in the hospital. And then tomorrow we'll, you know, we'll take care of the furniture, swap out, and he can be discharged home. So I go back to my mom's house and the hospital bed was downstairs in our family room, in my mom's family room. And my dad was a collector of hats. He has all, and I'm actually literally sitting in this very room right now because I'm at my mom's house today. And all these hats hanging up on this 
balanced on this uh, beam across the ceiling. My brother's sitting at the computer. My mom goes to bed. I'm laying in the hospital bed, looking up at all these hats hanging up on the ceiling. And I'm thinking to myself, look at all those hats hanging up there. And just then the phone rings and the nurse says, you need to come to the hospital now. I said, okay. And I hung up. I didn't even ask what's going on. I, I just, just, let's go. I told my brother, we got to get mom. Let's go to the hospital. So we're driving to the hospital and my brother's phone rings and he's driving. So I answer the phone and she says, yes, is Brad there? And I said, yeah, you just talked to me. I'm his sister. What's going on? And she said, your dad just died. And I said, oh, okay. So we get to the hospital and she knew I was a hospice nurse. And she said, do you want to know what happened? And I said, yes, tell me all about it. And she said, um, your dad was really having some trouble breathing. So I got him some morphine and gave it to him. And, he, and then he said to me, I'm about ready to hang it up. And I went to go get him some Ativan. And when I came back, he was having agonal breaths and then he died. And when I was laying in that hospital bed, looking up at my dad's collection of hats and thinking, look at all those hats hanging up there. He told the nurse, I'm about ready to hang it up. And he died. Although Penny was not with her father physically when he died, it wasn't her last interaction with him. A week after his death, Penny's dad came to her while she slept and said a final farewell. Me, I was um, sleeping and he came to me in the form of energy. He was really warm and, and uh, uh, it was bright orange light and it was his voice. And he said, it's time to go. And I said, oh, okay, well, the kids are going to really miss me. And he said, no, no, it's not time for you to go. It's time for me to go. And I said, oh, and he said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And uh, he left. This beautiful and tender farewell was so special and unique. The rest of the family wondered why they didn't receive the same departing message. First of all, my, my sister was like puzzled as to why I got the message. And I said, I'm really connected to death because I'm a hospice nurse. So I feel like I'm connected to death. And I think that's why. But then um, one night, my brother was downstairs. My sister was upstairs. And I, there was this big gust of wind that went through the house and my dad had he collected a lot of things, the wind chimes and all the wind chimes started chiming. And I was in the same room as my sister and I didn't hear a thing. But my brother comes bouncing up the stairs and he goes, oh my God, did you hear that? And my sister goes, yes, yes. And I was like, what? I didn't hear a thing. And they said all of the wind chimes just started all of a sudden, you know, just all of a sudden started chiming. And then later, um, my sister really had an experience with him where she, her daughter uh, fell into a drug trap and was using meth and heroin and it was just a nightmare situation. And, and all, uh, the good news is she's clean now, seven years now, she's clean. But uh, at the time it was just total devastation. And my sister started meditating and, and she said, my dad was coming to her and and he would say, you know what to do, Laura. and. And, and guiding her. It was, it's, that's a crazy story. I mean, it's, it's amazing. My sister was never spiritual or never believed in God. And she definitely does now, you know, she's like, oh yeah. He said, God was coming to me and dad was with them. And then she said, after a while, it wasn't, 
dad wasn't there anymore. It was just this other figure that she felt like was probably God. And, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. Just as Penny's dad died without his family at his bedside, she has a message for other families who'd loved ones pass without them. She's seen it all. People who wait for the whole family to assemble before dying and people who hold off so that they can transition independently. Something else that's really important to know too is that I hear from a lot of people that they felt guilty because they either didn't get there fast enough or they were there and they left the room to go pee and the person died uh, or whatever. And I always tell people, listen, I can't even tell you how many times I have seen a person wait to die until everyone was there or wait to die until everybody had left. If somebody needs for you to be present when they die, they will wait for you. They'll wait for you. Um, here's another story. I'll give you one more story I just thought of. One of my favorites that has along those lines. Um, this gentleman was in his own home dying and his wife and his two daughters were there and his dog was so the one with the dog under the bed for days holding vigil under the bed and so I get to the house and uh, I see like he's transitioning so people who are transitioning are going from a place of more living to more dying that's what I have that's how I explain transitioning they're turning the corner and they're they're getting they're going on that pathway of death now and so while I'm there, he's transitioning like super fast. I, and I said, oh, I, I think he's going to die like really soon. And he looks like he could die in minutes. And so each of the women take a body part. So one woman on either side, grab a hand, one at the foot of the bed, grab his foot. And they're all like stroking his hands, stroking his foot. It's okay, Dad. It's okay. We're here. It's okay, Dad. We're here with you. I said, I'm going to go in the kitchen and do some documentation. You come and get me when you need me, meaning when he dies. So I go into the kitchen, and I'm in there for like 20, 30 minutes, waiting, waiting, waiting. Wow, this is crazy. I can't believe he didn't die yet. I go back in there, and they're still all around the bed, stroking his hand, it's okay, Dad. We're here. And I looked at one of them and I said, is he the kind of guy that would have wanted this attention while he was living? And she literally dropped his hand and turned around and said, I've got to go to the bathroom. And the other two women did exactly the same thing. Like they dropped their body part and they left the room. And so then it's just me and him and the dog under the bed. I walk out into the kitchen and I said, you know, sometimes we have the ability to keep people here without meaning to. And it took me one, two minutes to tell them that. And then I turned around and went back into the room and he was dead. He died. He needed them to leave him alone so that he could die. People who are not able to be present when their person dies do not need to feel guilty about it. I believe that the most important thing is what you do and what you say before your loved one dies. I think the most important thing that people need to know about when their person is dying is that they, that person 
really needs to know what they meant, you know, what, what meaning their life, that their life had meaning. Um, they want to know that the people who they love, who, who are being left behind are going to be okay. Um, those are the things that, that somebody who's dying needs to know. And the best way to be able to let them know those things is to acknowledge that death is approaching, you know, is to, to be able to say, okay, this is what's going to happen, you know, and to have those conversations. Penny's word of warning here is don't wait too long. Tell your person while they're still alert and aware all the things that made them special to you. When my grandma was dying, my mom told me that hearing is the last sense to perish. So remember that even if they are not able to respond, it doesn't mean that they can't hear you. Know your voice and find comfort in your words. And as for you, the surviving family members, the idea of hospice may seem bleak. Maybe you feel like you're giving up on your person, or worse, that they maybe giving up on you. You know, we asking open-ended questions is always the best way to get to what is somebody's concern. What are your concerns about this? What are you worried about? I'm afraid you'll give up hope. Well, hospice really doesn't, we don't like to think of it as giving up hope. We like to think of it as changing what hope means. So now he can hope that he can be in his home with his family as caregivers, you know, spend his days with all of you rather than having to go to the ER or be hospitalized. You know, it's about changing what hope means. Penny, this might be too personal and feel free to say, no, no, thank you. But what do you think happens after we pass? After we die? Oh, I don't definitely don't think that's too personal because really it's just my opinion. We don't, nobody knows, right? We don't know. But I did really struggle with death anxiety when I was younger. I really struggled with it. I was so worried there'd be just nothing after we die. But I, I really believe that, um, you know, we know that nothing ever really disappears completely, right? It just changes its form. And, and, and often that's in the form of energy. And because my dad came to me in the form of energy, I really feel like that has something to do with, you know, when we die, there's, we, we go out in some way in energy and that we connect with others. I think, I hope that we retain our consciousness. I like to believe that we will because again, of my experience with my dad and because of the fact that I've had patients who see people that have died before them. So I do believe they come back and visit. So, um, you know, I, I guess I would say I'm not exactly sure what happens after we die, but I think it's I think it's something. I believe it's there's something that happens um, to us that our our spirit is energy and that we continue to live on in a way. Penny has a quote from Thierry Delard de Chardon as her email sign off that really resonated with me. It goes, "We are not human beings on a spiritual journey." We are spiritual beings on a human journey. I think that's a nice reminder that our journey doesn't end with death, but merely begins on a new path. There is nothing that anyone can say or do to ease the pain and sorrow that grief brings. But I'd like to share with you an analogy that one of my dear friends, Charlotte, shared with me while I was in the throes of heavy grief. 
She told me that grieving was like paying taxes. The more money you earn, the more tax you pay. The more memories you have, the more it hurts to say goodbye. And much like taxes, you have to confront your grief, address it wholly, honestly, and fully. Feel all the feels, acknowledge the pain, and remember that you are blessed to have so many wonderful memories to miss. As I say each year, this holiday season, I urge you to remember your loved ones joyfully. Share stories about them. Laugh at the funny memories and allow yourself to feel whatever emotions may come up. This is only a collection of stories from my chat with Nurse Penny. If you'd like to hear our whole conversation, head on over to the West London Witch Patreon for the full unabridged version. And don't forget to follow Hospice Nurse Penny on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. From all of us here at the West London Witch, I'd like to thank you for your constant love and support through 2022. We have some big surprises for you all in 2023 that we cannot wait to unveil in the new year. Until next time, merry meet, merry part, and a very merry Christmas. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Miss Sinead Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them.